Hello and welcome to Connecting the Pieces, an Eastern Sector Development Team podcast focused on connecting, supporting and promoting good diversity, wellness and reablement approaches. We'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people as the traditional owners of the land where this podcast is recorded and to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening today. On today's episode, we're joined by Pauline Cremieri and Andrew Rogers from Bell's LGBTI Ageing and Aged Care, a fantastic organisation that works with aged care, health and human services providers, as well as a range of community stakeholders to improve the health, wellbeing and visibility of older lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender and intersex people. This is the first in a three-part series and in this episode we will be discussing access and cultural safety. So Pauline and Andrew, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks very much for inviting us to chat about older LGBTI people. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Well, we're really excited to have you both with us to share some practical tips and examples of what welcoming and inclusive care looks like and to inspire our listeners to move beyond understanding the issues or barriers to a place of implementing real change. And just for anyone who may be listening and wondering why we aren't using the Q in the LGBTIQ acronym, that's because for some older members of our community, the word queer has very negative connotations as historically it was used as a derogatory word. So when discussing the issues and experiences of older members of the community, we often choose not to use the Q because many people don't identify with it. Andrew, if we could start with maybe asking you a question, and if we use this idea about the past discrimination and inequality that LGBTI community has experienced, we have seen quite a shift over the last maybe 10 years within the aged care sector with a much stronger focus on supporting the community. And there's also been a recognition that the community has unjustly experienced inequality and discrimination and that that's created barriers in accessing or receiving inclusive services. For anyone who's new to the topic, could you take us through a bit of the background as to where you see the inequality and barriers stemming from? I think that the history was one of state-sanctioned discrimination. You know, older LGBTI people have lived through a period, particularly in the earlier decades of their lives, when they were made wrong by pretty much every social structure in our society. And what that meant was that they had to lead lives that were perhaps invisible, or they had to compartmentalise their lives. And that made them very worried about and concerned about their safety in identifying as being lesbian or gay, bisexual, transgender, or having an intersex variation. It impacts now because they've had that experience in the past. So that helped them form views about how they will be treated by mainstream organisations. But we cannot get away from the fact that the discrimination they faced was sanctioned by pretty much every institutional support structure in our society who made it wrong. 
That's a really great summary of the issues and barriers that older LGBTI people can experience as a result of past discrimination and inequality. Thanks, Andrew. Pauline, I think one question that we hear quite often, and you've probably been asked this countless times, is how do services go about creating safe and welcoming environments for older LGBTI people? That's a really great question, and I guess we could probably talk about that all day long. I think one of the most important aspects is that services take the time to educate themselves, ensure that everyone within their service is aware of the historical experiences that many of their older LGBTI clients have experienced and how those experiences have impacted them throughout their lives but as older people and how they view services. So I think it starts with education and awareness and it's really important that everyone within a service or a program has that education. We at VELS provide education to the sector and we are really passionate about ensuring that People working right across the sector, regardless of their role, have that understanding and knowledge. And then once you've got that foundational information, it puts you in a place where you can start to look at what you might need to do to ensure that you as an individual, but more importantly, you as a service, can be LGBTI inclusive. And once people have that education and awareness, Do you have any tools or resources that can help them think about how to progress to the next stage? VELS has developed a review tool that really helps to guide services through the process. It's 2022. We are 10 years down the track where the Aged Care Act was amended to include older LGBTI people. So for most services, I hope this isn't something new. So it's really important to identify what you're already doing because, as I said, most services are, and then communicate that to the community. But also look at all the other aspects within your service and we provide information in that review tool, as well as in our education about how you might go about becoming and developing your service to be LGBTI aware and inclusive. Thanks for that, Pauline. I think what you've touched on there is so important and we'll provide all the links to the resources and Val's website. And it really moves people beyond just thinking that training and education is the start and the end of it. And I think that's such a valuable resource and a valuable message that VALS has continued to put out there. So thank you very much for that. Andrew, if we think about the older LGBTI client, have you had people from the community tell you what they look for in a service to know whether it is welcoming, safe or inclusive? We have at VALS, we often hear from older LGBTI people about what they want and that is quite simply that their identity be respected in an authentic fashion, that they don't have to hide in any way who they are and that they will be supported in being who they are and that is of concern to them because they come from a period where they had to hide and in many ways that hiding is natural to them. So it may also be 
that what they want from a service is to know that they are included and supported without having to reveal their identity. And that's a big thing we often find is people say, I don't necessarily want to tell that I'm lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, and or have an intersex variation, but I want to know that it's safe should I choose to do so. So, Andrew, what would that actually mean for older LGBTI people? That means being able to participate in all forms of programs or services in a way where they won't be judged, where they won't be discriminated against. And often what we hear is people say, oh, if I tell them I might get a lower level of service or they might not treat me well. And it's overcoming that fear that is perhaps most important in creating a welcoming environment. It's not that you're going to welcome open and out people necessarily. It's that you're creating an environment where people feel safe enough that if they choose to do so, they can disclose. But if they never disclose, they still feel safe. And if I could add to that, one of the things that we know from research is that people want to see some substance there. I think in our training, one of the things that we often ask services is, what are you doing? And they'll say, oh, we've got a rainbow sticker on the door. But what else? And there's no substance beyond that. We know that people are really looking for messages of welcome because as Andrew said, when, we, when he was talking about history, people weren't welcomed. They were turned away from services. So it's really important that service providers have all of those elements. Again, using the VELS review tool, using the framework of the Rainbow Tick standards helps you develop an authentic, safe and inclusive service. I think that's such important information for our listeners to receive because often there is this idea that the number of out LGBTI people in your service is a gold standard or that tells us that we're doing something right. But as you've really clearly explained, everyone has a very different journey and a very different example of how or if they want to come out in a service and no one should be forced to to be out in order to have it be non-discriminatory and inclusive. And we would know as society continues to change, it's not only going to be LGBTI people who want those environments to be inclusive and safe for LGBTI people. Grandparents have children and grandchildren and friends and other family who belong to the community who also hold these values really important. You've raised a really good point there because LGBTI inclusion is not just specifically about people who identify, but all of them have families as well. And we have heard of stories from people who feel they can't talk about their children or their grandchildren because they'll be judged by other participants or by staff members. And that means those people can't be their full authentic selves in the service and that they're actually having to edit the stories that they tell. And that can be particularly important for those sorts of services and programs where telling your story and being honest is a really important part of the service. 
Thanks so much, Pauline and Andrew. There's been some really wonderful insights. And I think, Andrew, as you were sharing some of the experiences of people that have spoken to you, it's about dignity and respect for individuals and for people to be themselves. And I suppose, as most of our listeners will know, we've got the Charter of Aged Care Rights, of which dignity and respect are a key feature, but also the aged care quality standards, of which the concept of cultural safety is front and centre within those standards. And we've discussed previously that cultural safety is an individual thing and that no two people are actually the same. And we've heard a couple of ideas about how organisations might demonstrate cultural safety within their environment. I'm wondering whether there are other examples that you're able to share. I think one of the things to say on that is dignity is really important, but you cannot have dignity without safety. And so one of the important considerations for a service provider is how do you create authentic safety for someone? who may or may not identify openly, but is actually part of the community. And that means being respectful in things like the use of language, in not making assumptions about relationships or friendships or who it is that is important to that person, of having it be understood that it makes no difference to the quality of service. Thanks, Andrew. It really sounds like services need to be explicit to everybody about how they're inclusive and welcoming in order to create authentic safety. So is part of that trying to overcome the previous history that people may have experienced? And at its core, this is about demonstrating trust in the services, but also trust in the people working there. History has a contemporary relevance for older LGBTI people. But for many older LGBTI people, how they responded to mainstream services in the past still informs how they respond to those services now because their experience has been one of not being welcomed. It's not just that they can trust the organisation, but the fear can be around the individual. Who is it that I'm getting on the phone? Who will be talking to me about the assessment? So it's that first person that becomes absolutely essential in ensuring that the message of safety and welcome is made. We can think about the organisation, but it has to be every individual. And so one of the things that's required for an organisation is regardless of whether or not you know you have LGBTI clients is to build a culturally safe, inclusive and welcoming environment so that people who have had that historic experience can perhaps use your services safely without disclosing, as we talked about before. History has a contemporary relevance. Also, that older LGBTI people may not feel as empowered as other service users, and that's a really important part of cultural safety, is ensuring or understanding the power dynamics and imbalances and how your service can cater for those. 
I think that's a really key point for our listeners and this can probably go quite a long way in responding to some of the ideas that people have, particularly when they say, you know, our organisation is inclusive, people just aren't using our services. And I think it also goes to the point around, you know, it's one thing to want to be inclusive, but you really only know you are by what your clients are telling you. We obviously know that the LGBTI community is not homogenous. There will be some shared experiences, but are there some things that you could sort of pinpoint that may be different for the different parts of the acronym that are really important around cultural safety for different members? It's quite apparent, of course, that you know the experience of lesbians is going to be different to the experience of gay men, is going to be different to the experience who are of people who are bisexual or people who are transgender or people who have an intersex variation. Some of them, those groups, it's about who they're attracted to, lesbian, gay, bisexual. So there you're dealing with the nature of people's relationships and the people who are important to them first up. That's the big difference for them as opposed to perhaps the mainstream population. For people who are transgender, It isn't necessarily about who they're attracted to, of course. It's about their gender identity and who they know themselves to be. And that can be in the way they express themselves, the way they present themselves, but it's their knowingness of who they are. And that's quite different to who they're attracted to. For somebody who has an intersex variation, it's a physiological or bodily different. So you're dealing with variations in the body. One thing that unites all of these is that they were made wrong historically. That's the big uniting thing here. And then we have the different experiences according to whether it's based on body or attraction or sense of gender identity. I think that's a really great summary of the similarities, but also the differences that people from the different parts of the acronym may have experienced. Pauline, if we were to think about some real life actions that people can put into place to create a culturally safe environment, what would some of those things be? There's lots of different ways that we can do things. Do we use pronouns? Do we use pronouns ourselves as a way of guiding and showing clear messages of welcome? So if you're participating in Zoom meetings or on your emails or perhaps if you're going out and interacting with people, you know, be it assessment in their home, in a social support program, do you wear a pronoun badge? Does your service have gendered services or gendered bathrooms, for example? And what does that mean for trans and gender diverse people? Do you use culturally appropriate language? I know earlier on, Dale, you mentioned the term queer. If we talked about our services being a queer safe space or we provide services to the queer community, what does that mean when we're talking and providing services to older people. And from an LG and a B perspective, you know, in addition to what Pauline has said there, one of the important things is to not make assumptions about the gender of relationships. Don't presume that people are necessarily heterosexual. Don't assume that until told otherwise. Start from the other way around. Don't assume any relationship 
until it's confirmed one way or the other. Because often what we hear is people don't feel comfortable necessarily in disclosing who it is that is their principal partner in life because of that concern around judgment around gender of the relationship. Pauline, what are some of the things that service providers need to be doing to attract the attention of clients to really demonstrate their cultural safety that we've been talking about? I think that public commitment is a really important element, ensuring that as many different ways that you can demonstrate this is considered in an authentic way, in the way that your actual service delivers services. It's not a cookie-cutter approach. While there are certainly ways that we can all do this, we need to look at our service, we need to look at our client group, we need to be considering all of those things in order to ensure that our services are LGBTI inclusive. Thanks for that. Pauline and Andrew, I think we're really getting a great sense of what cultural safety can look like for different people within the LGBT and I communities. And it's never been clearer the responsibility placed on service providers and individuals to deliver on that. Just as we wrap up part one of our discussion, I wanted to get your thoughts on how community expectation will change over time. You've spoken quite a bit about the older cohort of LGBT and I people being referred to as almost the silent generation. As there are new generations of older LGBTI people coming into services, will that have an impact and affect what is expected and the way in which people will engage with services? There is already a slightly different cohort of people coming, and that is the out loud proud generation. And they are, you know, the first people who lived out loud and proud are now in their 70s. And so their approach to services is quite different because they have no intention of being invisible. And their fear is that they will have to go back into the closet when they've spent all of their lives out of the closet. And so what they're looking for is, again, real evidence that their authentic identity will be respected and they'll be treated safely and welcomed for being who they are, openly and honestly. Well, I think that's a perfect way to end part one of our three-part series looking at the needs, experiences and expectations of older LGBTI people. We will be back with part two of this conversation where we take a deep dive into the assessment process and think about the specific and unique needs of older LGBTI people and what services and assessment officers need to have in place to ensure that's a safe inclusive and responsive environment. Thank you for listening. The Easter Sector Development Team is supported by the Australian Government, Department of Health, and although funding has been provided by the Australian Government, the material and comments made do not necessarily reflect the views or the policies of the Australian Government.